This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 148 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Reuven Lerner. Hi everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv and this week we have a special guest, Jonathan Stark. Hello. Now, Jonathan, we had you on a few months ago, but do you want to introduce yourself anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I am a mobile strategy consultant. I help retail brands thrive in the post-PC era. But the reason why you guys are interested in having me on is because I also do mentoring and coaching for technical firms who are trying to basically grow their business. Uh, So we talked in the past about ditching hourly billing, and this week we're going to talk about how to attract clients without doing sales. Awesome. Now, when you say how to attract clients without doing sales, are you talking about uh, not doing marketing, or are you talking about a different kind of sales process once you have a lead? Good question. So, of course, everyone's doing sales in the sense that they're doing a transaction, so there's a sale. But I think the word that comes to mind when I talk to people about their fear of doing sales is this sort of notion of cold calling or this sort of aggressive sales outreach, as opposed to uh, what I'll describe today, which is much more passive and will be certainly extremely comfortable for anybody in the technical field. Gotcha. So it seems like, I'm just going to throw it out there, it seems a little bit almost too good to be true. I get that. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll, I'll quickly say that uh, it's not the kind of thing you do overnight, first of all. And second of all, that sort of aggressive cold calling sales thing doesn't work for our kind of jobs anyway. You know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, doing cold calls is really effective, but I know you don't want to do it. So let's do something that's uh, more comfortable for you because cold calls don't really work anyway when you're trying to sell your expertise because the the balance of power is completely wrong in the relationship if that's how you're beginning it. That's the bad first foot forward. I'll just say that like a number of years ago, it was probably like 10, 15 years ago, I somehow was was convinced. I don't think people convinced me, but I convinced myself, you know, I should really get more clients. I should do cold calls, right? I've heard it works. And I make some calls and I don't know whether they were more confused or I was more uncomfortable, but basically <laughs> it was, it was a lose lose situation all around. And after about 10 of these calls, I realized this is a terrible way for me to be spending my time. It, um, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like I just stopped right then and there. Uh-huh. I've heard people able to succeed with it, but it just seems, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it doesn't seem to make sense, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there are, I, I have talked to, I can think of one example of an iOS shop that has, it's a churn and burn type of thing where they do 
one-off apps for people. And they have, they, at the time when I spoke with them, which was going back a year or two now, they had like three iOS developers and 16 salespeople. And they just called all day until they landed somewhere. I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't. It can, I suppose, get you clients, but they're the worst kind of clients. And they're not, not the kind of clients that you're ever going to. It's just a, a horrible way to approach the stuff we do. And, you know, it's probably not the kind of organization that uh, anyone listening wants to build. I mean, do you really want your core expertise to be outnumbered staff wise by salespeople three to one? <laughs> you know, it's a whole different kind of organization. Well, and it seems to me that uh, if you're doing cold calling, I mean, you're really not short. You may find some people that you wouldn't have found otherwise, but you're not short circuiting any of the process. And you actually have to work harder to do the things that your marketing systems would have done for you because you have to manually lead people through it instead of having a system out there that does all that for you. Agreed. Yeah. So that goes back to your question of it sounds too good to be true. It's all hard work, but I would propose that there's a better way to do it, which we can talk about today. I think most people that I talk to don't really have, they're, they're not doing anything. You know, they just sort of stumble along by a sort of accidental word of mouth kind of thing. I'm noticing more and more people getting a little bit better at capturing email addresses, doing lead generation and lead nurturing with, you know, marketing automation. And that's definitely one of the tactics. But that sort of thing where I think in the, the field that we're in, the end goal is to become the go-to person or the go-to agency for a particular thing. And what that means is, another way to put that is that you've generated like an insane amount of trust in the audience around this thing that you do. So for me, it was it sort of culminated in me writing a really popular book. And once I did that, it was like the phone basically rings off the hook. Because once you're the person that wrote the book on something, it's almost like a meme. You can't beat it. But, it, you know, you can't just go out and write a book and have it be successful. There's like a whole series of steps that lead up to putting yourself in a position to get a book deal like that. Okay, so I want in. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> Great segue. <laughs> <laughs> so I broke this into, for this the purposes of this conversation, I'm focusing on mostly on the attract clients part, but a little bit of how to convert that into sales a little bit. So there's three main aspects to this, uh, and I'll talk about each one in depth. And the first one is to pigeonhole yourself, which probably sounds counterintuitive, but like I said, we'll talk about it. The next thing is going to be, I would want people to share their passion as much as possible. So that, of course, implies that you have a passion and you know what it is, and then share it as freely as you can, as far and wide as you can. And then the third aspect to this is creating a product ladder on your site where people can get into the habit of buying things from you. So a product ladder basically is maybe three or four items that start at a, uh, a low price point and work themselves up to a really high price point. And they all sort of hang together. They're on the same topic and they're sort of, you could almost think of them as like, they're not upsells really, but they're more uh, valuable versions of your expertise packaged up in some way. And as people start to hear about you and they have like a lower trust level, they can sort of get in with the least expensive option. And then if you deliver on that and deliver value to them, then it builds trust and they hear more about you in the marketplace. And it sort of has this virtuous cycle where they can ladder up your products. And, and when I say products, they could be products or productized services or high touch consulting services. So does that seem like a, a good overview? Does that any questions there? 
No, that's that's totally, that makes a lot of sense and is in line with the advice that I've heard and I've been trying to put into practice uh, over the last few months. And I'm starting to see the benefits. Like I haven't quite gotten there, but I'm starting to see exactly how this works and why it's so powerful. Excellent. So do go on. Okay, so let's talk about, so step one is pigeonholing yourself. And it's, uh, I purposely use that term because it sounds counterintuitive. It seems like being pigeonholed is a bad thing. But in fact, with the overwhelming amount of choice that everybody has now that the internet is the marketplace or the web is everyone's marketplace, you need to do everything you can to slot yourself into that little compartment in your prospective client's heads. So they've got a need and you fit it. Even though you're oversimplifying a million things, you still want to create a positioning statement that will pigeonhole you with a particular audience. Without doing this, none of the other things I'm going to talk about will work. So when we get into the sharing your passion part and sort of content marketing and and all of those activities, none of it will work because if you haven't specialized, focused down on a particular thing that you do for a particular audience of people, then as you do these marketing activities, they won't slowly build on each other. They'll just be all over the place. So the work you do today on a blog post will be wasted as, you know, six months later when someone is, is considering buying one of your higher ticket items and they are clicking through your site and these certain things don't support their concept of, you know, the box they put you in in their head. So it's kind of like going, well, we'll get to that, but when we talk about marketing, but Reuven, how would you characterize what it is that you do? So if you, you meet somebody at a cocktail party and they say, oh, hey, nice to meet you. What do you do? Right. So this has shift a bit over the last few years. Because I used to say, like, I would say even two years ago, I'd say, well, I do some development, and I do some consulting, and I do some training. And they say, oh, in what? And I say, oh, well, I do it in Ruby, and in Python, and in Postgres. And, get, and basically, by the time I get through describing what I do, they've either fallen asleep or found someone more interesting, or I have not described anything actually useful to them. <laughs> so through reading, discussion, some of the discussion on the show, it's become clear that, yeah, choosing a niche is, is kind of important. And so I've been moving more and more into the, the training area. And so I basically, I mean, yes, I do other things too, but my main thing nowadays is I help people get better use out of certain open source technologies uh, with a particular emphasis on Python nowadays. So I give lectures, I write books, I write blog posts, I give webinars on how you can use Python more effectively. So in your shift into focusing down a little bit, have you noticed that it it has created a little bit of a gravitational pull for you where people are just sort of automatically coming to you for a particular thing? Um, increasingly. I mean, I've been a little hesitant to sort of, I realize I need to rebrand my website to make that shift very obvious. And I've been hesitant to do it just because of business slash political concerns. I do a lot of my training through a training company and I'm planning to break away from them and they don't want me advertising myself on my own yet. But literally in the next day or two, I have a phone call set up with them that I'm going to be saying, you know what, it's been great, but I'm moving on to do things myself. And at that point, basically, I'm going to switch my website to say, you want to learn Python better, come to me. But even without that, even without that, just the, the blog posts and the book have definitely, yeah, they, they, I mean, look, Cisco called me and said, we want two weeks every month through November from you to do training. And, you know, yeah. that's a nice oh. feeling. And basically, I've run out of days in the week and days in the month for me to do training because I, I want to, at least in theory, do some other things too. Um, Excellent. And it's been fascinating because just yesterday, someone asked me about, she said her husband wants to do freelancing. What should he do? And I said, well, he should define, just what you said, he should define a really, really narrow subject to specialize in. And she gave me the same bug eyes that 
I gave people, you know, even at last year or two. But it's true. It, it definitely helps. You become the big fish in the small pond rather than the small fish in the big pond. Exactly. It's totally true. And the thing is, the pond is so huge now that even a small pond is pretty big. So it, cause the, the, one of the things that people fear when they imagine moving from a generalist position to a specialized position is that they feel like there won't be enough business. They won't get enough leads to sustain things. And typically when I ask someone, okay, how many leads you're getting now? They'll say like, oh, I don't know, one or two a month. And I'm like, you're basically getting no leads right now. So mm-hmm. niching down or pigeonholing yourself in your marketing is not going to do anything negative to your business. <laughs> it's already pretty bad. There's no pipeline. Gives no pipeline. You're imagining that there's this huge market out there who's just waiting to call you, but it's it's not happening. So you really have little to lose. The other thing that tends to scare people about this is that they fear that they will become bored because they'll be doing the same thing all the time. And my response to that is that the focus that you are adding to your business shifts your, I guess, the educational part of your job, like that part of your brain that loves learning things, because I think we all have that. That's why we do this job. That part of your your brain that wants to learn things is scared that it's not going to learn anything anymore. But in fact, what happens is you start to learn deep expertise instead of broad expertise. So instead of being a jack of all trades and learning everything about everything and you know, oh, I, I'm going to try Node on this project because I just think it sounds cool and it, it, everybody tells me it's really cool. <laughs> you don't do that. You do that on your side projects. If you're really curious about it, you really want to do it for yourself and you're just curious. That is on your time. That's your education. But you can go super deep in a particular topic and there, you'll find that it's bottomless. There is no end to the depth that you can take into a field. And that is how you become an expert. So people who are like, oh, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I'm a you see it all the time. I'm a full stack web developer and they feel like they have this broad, well, they do have a broad expertise, but it's not expertise, really. They have a bunch of skills that hang together pretty well, but it, I wouldn't call it expertise in the sense that we're talking about it because they haven't gone deep. I guess my question is, and I know we've talked a little bit about this on other episodes, but, you know, I guess the question is, is, you know, how do you know that one particular niche does have enough work to support you? I mean, you know, if you pick an open source software or something that's, you know, semi-popular and you can do something that's kind of niche down in it, some areas are going to be more, there's going to be more work in there. You can, versus another, like if you niche down into like basket weaving websites and you're going to build them in Rails, you know, I don't know if there are that many people out there, but if you're going to go into like one of the big open source platforms like Spree or Redmine or something like that, then there's a ton of work out there. Mm. So great question. And you're bringing up a couple of important issues. One is that I'll answer your first question first, which is how do you know if the niche is big enough? And I would say that if there's a conference for the thing, it's big enough. Okay. So mm, that's, 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 that's a really, thumb. really quick answer. Uh, it's a little bit of a broad brush, but if, if there's no conference for the thing, there's no trade journal for the thing, you probably still could get away with it. But I would say that I would be extremely confident that there are plenty of people if there's a conference for the thing. The other thing that you brought up, which we haven't even touched on yet, which is not just niching down on your discipline, but also focusing on a target market. You started to make a couple of examples of target markets there uh, when you said basket weaving. And I think this is actually extremely important because if you focus on a target market, so I, you know, I pick retail brands, but you could pick basket weaving, you could pick soap making, whatever it is. 
if there's a conference for that thing, then the market's probably big enough for you. Assume, you know, assuming that you've got a boutique firm or you're a solo, uh, solo developer. Now, retail brand and seems a little bit large. Is there, how do you know you it is large far enough? To be perfectly honest, and this we'll get into this later, I'm actually getting ready to change my target market, which I wasn't even going to talk about until later. But this positioning statement is not forever, uh, which is another thing. If you're if you're scared about picking this positioning statement or, or <coughs> niching yourself down, it's not necessarily forever. So retail brands is kind of vague for someone who's just starting out. But I'm just at a point where I've been doing this for long enough that I can really focus on, I, I can get the phone calls from a Target or from a Staples. Mm-hmm. So for me, yes, it is broad. So I'm put, but it's, I'm in a big, I'm higher up the chain, but really how many retailers at, at a high level, how many Fortune 50 retailers are there? Less than uh, 50. Probably about 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to guess. Yeah. Right. But it's a great point. It's a great point. I wouldn't start there with something like that. I would start with uh, what would be more truly considered a niche. Like, I mean, the soap making example is hilarious. I, you know, we can probably look, I'll give you a link to put in the show notes, but there's this great website where this woman does business development for soap makers. And she, by all appearances, has a booming business, which you'd think would, there's no way could you support that kind of a job in that kind of a niche. Like how much money do people have to spend on making soap as a hobby? You know, but it, it happens. So at any rate, if you pick a target market, so you say something like, I do content marketing for basket weavers, right? So you say what you do, you say that's your discipline. My discipline is content marketing and or web design, whatever it is. And you, who do you do it for? And once you do that, once you pick that, you have immediately just clicked with a whole, you know, maybe a hundred thousand people who are devout basket weavers. Uh, you will meet, they'll be like, I can't believe this exists. Look, look at this. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what I've been looking for. <laughs> and they start reading. And the thing that's uh, the sort of side benefit of picking a niche is now you can start writing all your copy on your site and your blog posts. Everything that you put out, you can write in their language because you picked someone who has a tribe. You picked a tribe. You picked a culture that has terms that are specific to them and that that will cause them to identify you as a member of the tribe. So it's a, borrowing a term from Seth Godin there, but it, it's he's right. It's very powerful. So all of a sudden, all of your content on your site, you know, you know, when you, you're like staring at your page, like, oh, I need to redo my site. And you're just staring at this blank page, like, what do I write? And it come out with these weasel wordy, like we solve complex solutions with elegant, you know, it's you just come up with this like weird corporate pseudo speak because you don't know who you're talking to. So as soon as you know who you're talking to, you can get really specific and it becomes, um, it, it's just a, a great trust indicator. So it, it increases trust among your target market. And again, to your point about how do you know the market's big enough? Anyone I've ever worked with in my mentoring program, no one has ever, ever had that problem. You always tend to err on the side of too general. Right. Well, I mean, to, to some degree, I, I thought about this a bit over the last few months. And at the end of the day, how many clients can I really serve a year? Right. Like, like if yeah. I'm one person, let's assume that I have one new client every week, which is like not true. Even for someone like me where I have lots of clients, I'm constantly switching things and so forth. If I have like 20 clients a year, that's already a lot. And finding a topic for which there are only 20 people on the entire planet who are interested is going to be really hard. 
Right. Um, and yeah. so, right, right. You can, you can get really specific and there will still be a lot of people interested in that topic, almost certainly. Right. And again, if there's a conference for those people, not only do you know that there's an audience, but you also know how to find them. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you don't pick a target market, you are just putting pages on the web. And, you know, and maybe I was guilty of this until recently, actually. You end up, uh, once you get to the point in your marketing where you're getting asked to speak at conferences, you end up going to these generalist conferences that are about your discipline, but not about your target market. Once you have a target market, you can start speaking at conferences that they go to, if that makes sense. So a vertical conference. So instead mm-hmm. of going to, you know, so like, uh, I've spoken at web directions a bunch of times and that is attended by a bizarre pastiche of, well, it's all web, des- web designers and web developers. And sometimes you'll get product managers, digital product managers, but it's never the CEO of Target. It's never the SVP of North American sales for whatever IBM. But there are conferences that those people go to. So if you switch over, like I'm doing next month, I'm doing a talk in Vegas at Mertech, which is like uh, the largest conference for multi-unit restaurants, aka chain restaurants. So there's not going to be a web developer in the house. It's going to be all upper management, and I'm going to be talking about mobile, and I'm going to be talking about strategy and web and how to actually design for mobile. It's the same talk I give to web designers and web developers, but it's a much more targeted and potentially lucrative audience. But even better than that, if you're the only person in that room who knows about web technologies, then you are suddenly, of course you're the expert. Like You, you, you literally are the expert in the room on that stuff, and all these people are saying, wow, I know that I need to get into mobile. How? Because this guy just told me. Who am I going to turn to? I'll talk to this guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and you're right. absolutely right. If you look at the agenda, there are a million things on the agenda, and I think only one or two are mobile-related. You know, there's things about, like, how to manage a drive through You know, there's all sorts of topics, as you might imagine, that are specific to that industry. So for the people who are interested in mobile, they are automatically going to gravitate to my time. They're pre-qualified. Mm-hmm. Like they're self-selecting as people who are interested in the stuff I'm passionate about. So you can, I mean, just as a thought experiment, you can see how that is a wildly more valuable opportunity than speaking at something like Artifact or Future of, you know, FOA or whatever. Even though those are even a list apart, that's a, or an event apart. That's a massive conference. You get like, you know, you speak there, all of a sudden you have a hundred thousand Twitter followers, but it's not targeted at a vertical. So let's say that you've chosen your vertical or, you know, be that an industry or a particular solution and, uh, you know, you figured out, okay, they kind of have these places that they gather, right? I mean, that that's what you're talking about with the conference, you know, mm-hmm. so you can be there and be the technical expert for them. What do you do next? I mean, you know, so you go speak at their conference. Are there other things that you should be doing that will target them, that will kind of build that marketing funnel or whatever you want to call it that's going to move them into the next phase? Yes, 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 exactly. So you're not going to start off getting asked to go to conferences like that. So where do you start? And I picture this as a as a sort of concentric, sort of expanding spiral. So you start in the middle and you're going to do some small stuff to share your passion. And then you're going to keep circling larger and larger and larger, spiraling out farther and farther into the consciousness of your target market. So there's basically, I broke it into like three stages. So first there's a simple stuff. And then there's the point where you've built up enough trust 
with doing simple things that you can borrow someone else's audience. And then eventually you can leverage that up into longer form work. So let's run through those. So simple stuff you can do to share this passion that you have that's, you know, that is in support of your marketing message, your positioning statement. You can obviously blogging, you know, you can blog on your own site. You're going to do social media. You're going to tweet about stuff that you love and, you know, people are going to start following you based on, you know, you curating that information for them. You can do podcasting. We all know that that is a, a great way to build expertise and you don't need any permission to do it. You just start recording. You can get PR through sites or services like uh, Help a Reporter Out or PR Leads. Uh, have you guys heard of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm okay. subscribed to uh, Help a Reporter Out or Haro is what yeah, I've heard it called. Yeah, so PR Leads is a paid version of that. I think the quality is a little higher there, but it is... Uh, a little bit more expensive. Well, it's more expensive than free. I think it's a hundred bucks a month, but it's the same concept where uh, experts and writers are, sorry, writers are looking for experts to essentially comment on the theme of a story. And there are two interesting things that happen there. One is that obviously you get your name in print and you kind of inherit some of the trust that the readers of that publication invest in the publication. So it kind of, you get this halo effect. But also, day after day, as you're getting these requests, which 90% won't apply to you, you're actually seeing what things are of interest to people. And you can a lot of times find an angle that supports your position. So even if, you know, somebody's like somebody, reporters looking for comments on drones, I can comment on that, but from a a mobile strategy angle. So I could say mm-hmm. something about drones like, oh, well, the reason why drones are even possible with, you know, in that, it, with the uh, general market is because the popularity of smartphones and that you can leverage the, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you could do it with crazy stuff like, like a weight loss trend. Like, oh, you know, somebody for Women's Day wants people to comment on weight loss trends. And I could, I could totally jump on that with like a wearables thing and how, you know, like a Fitbit angle and how that, tethers off your phone and the way the phone enables you to actually get any kind of usefulness out of these wearable, you know, so you get the idea. Once you have this positioning statement, you can see almost anything through that lens and attempt to get into really pretty mass market publications. Okay, so that's PR. And another thing that everyone should be doing is building up their mailing list and sort of nurturing that list by sending out valuable content periodically, maybe once a week's too often, once a month's probably as far as you'd want to let it go, but set up a, a mailing list and sort of and continue to just try and gather more and more email addresses, which will become more and more valuable over time as you create more and more content and free value and free educational resources that all hang together around your positioning so that you you're not the stuff that you did six months ago all of a sudden doesn't become irrelevant. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so you're increasing the shelf life of your of all of your the work that led up to wherever you are at the moment. So once you start to have a little bit of a name for yourself in the area as like maybe you're not the go-to guy yet, but you're starting to develop a little bit of an audience and you've got a little bit of depth to your work, then you can basically I call it borrowing an audience. I'm kind of doing it today. I am doing it today. So like I, you guys invited me on your show. Thank you very much. And you know, your audience is hearing what I'm talking about. Um, when people come on, I have a podcast as well. When people come on that show, they're doing the same thing. When you do a guest post on somebody else's blog, you're doing the same thing. When you speak at a meetup, you're doing the same thing where people, you know, this, this third party, this something besides you has an audience and the person who runs that something besides you has, you've convinced them that you are 
somewhat of an expert in your area and they invite you to share that that expertise with their audience and it makes them look good and it makes you look good so that is that's sort of the next level up where you don't 100% have control over that you need to get an invite to do it um, but it's extremely valuable once you have moved up to that point or once you're you're sort of getting to that point you're probably going to notice that you are seeing themes in your own work that maybe you didn't intentionally put there. So like for me, pigeonholing yourself is a theme that revealed itself to me. I didn't start out to tell people to pigeonhole themselves or specialize, but it just became something that I, I was always telling people. So I've blogged about it. I talk about it on shows and et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that's become a theme and is a, a perfect candidate to do like a webinar or just sort of bundle together all the things that I've written around that subject and turn it into like an ebook, like an ebook guide or a manual or something, that sort of thing. So you can take all of, you can sort of not cut and paste, but you can pull from all this body of work that you're creating and create a bundled focus. So some kind of product or whether it's free or paid, that is a little bit more long form and therefore potentially probably more useful to people, but certainly an indicator of your expertise and something that will build trust with an audience. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that people just like out of the gate, sit down and like try and write a 300 page book. That's a great way to write a bad book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, uh, so another podcast that I'm involved in is, uh, the Entre Programmers podcast. Mm hmm. And anyway, we got an email from somebody that basically said, I'm writing this book about this thing. Uh, it was financial investing, some kind of investing. And anyway, what he wrote was, uh, I'm writing this book and I want to know how to get into the niche market when I'm done with the book. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it just seemed a little bit backward to me. Yes. And I mean, I've been reading a book about uh, being a key person of influence in the area that you work in, mm -hmm. and they mention that a book is a credibility builder, but it's not the first thing they recommend you do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and mm -hmm. so it, it was kind of interesting. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I got sent around our little uh, mailing list for our mastermind group and you know, my response was basically, yeah, I was, is it okay if I, my response is don't write the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally, a lot of people want to be the person who wrote the book, rightly so. It's a, it's a great thing for your business, but it's biting off a lot. It's a lot of work. And if, if your theories haven't been road tested at all, people will know, like it's, it's, first of all, it won't hold together. It'd be really hard to write. So it's definitely not a great first step, but I think a great first step is hosting so you've got a theory, you've got some uh, some hypothesis that you you feel like you've got a theory on. Hosting free webinars and allowing like Q and A. So do like a like a forty five minute webinar on your subject and do Q and A with a, hopefully a targeted audience. So you you know you do your a free webinar for basket weavers on web development or whatever it is, whatever your subject area is, your discipline is. And you talk to them for like a solid 15, 20 minutes after you're done and get their feedback. And you'll see immediately like what their pain points are, the parts of your argument that didn't make sense um, or they just completely disagree with or are offended by. You know, there's all sorts of ways where you're sort of on the on the early side of things to really shoot yourself in the foot. And the last place you want to have those words recorded is in a printed book. It's a terrible place to have stuff you're embarrassed about later. 
Mm-hmm. So that's just one suggestion, like how to build yourself, uh, uh, build a way into a book. You got to have a conversation first. A book is almost like the outcome of already being very confident that you know what you're talking about. Right. I mean, like the, the book that I wrote was basically a print version of the, I mean, it's a book of exercises in Python to improve your fluency. And it was taken almost 100% from the exercises that I've done with training over the last 10 years, especially in the last five years. And so I saw sort of what worked and what didn't work. And so I felt confident, okay, I can write this down and people and I can use it. And the, the people who bought it have said, wow, this is what I was looking for. But I don't think that I, it would have been nearly as successful if I just said, you know what? I kind of know this subject. I'm going to sit down and write some exercises. Like there's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah. I, I think that it, indeed actually would have been a bit of a flop. Oh yeah. Yes. I agree. Like the approach that you took is more or less the approach I took. I hadn't, I didn't have 10 years of training under my belt, but that was more similar to the approach I took or the path that I took. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but it was very similar. I had done a lot of training. I had spoken to a lot of people in person, sort of like under, I had internalized their pains they were the same pains I was feeling and I was sort of the, I was just the one that went and like said, all right, I'm figuring this out <laughs> and, you know, figured it out. So that was the iPhone book. I did the HTML, CSS, JavaScript, iPhone book. And it just resonates with people because it, and it's like not magic why it resonated. It resonated because I talked with a million people first. <laughs> so it was not, it was no surprise. I mean, yes, I was surprised. I was incredibly gratified that it sold well, but it's not rocket science. That's for sure. But um, I, so, I also just, yeah. Getting back for a moment to something, I can't remember if, if you were sort of on this with your list or just mentioned at the beginning. It, it's also important to sort of have these multiple products at different tiers. Um, one of the first products that I tried to sell with absolutely no success was a paid three-day online course. I was like, you know, people do this all the time. I've been doing training all the time. I'll just advertise it and people will flock to me, right? <laughs> I could, and, and right, and that, that sort of, you know, smirk that I heard now uh, from you was completely and 100% in place. And I remember talking to Brendan Dunn about this, and he was very, as usual, nice about it. He said, you know, Ruben, the first purchase people make from you online is not likely to be a $1,000 product. Like, they've never (laughs) met you before, right? Like, that's – I I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it it, it was like, that's going to be a challenge. I think that was the phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. And right, and now I'm seeing, so I did my book, like I've got, I've done some free webinars and I've started to get people emailing me and it's like this amazing feeling of what else are you doing? I will buy it, which I never expected, ever, ever expected, but you have to play the long game and you have to put the small, you have to do it little by little and then it sort of happens. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you can imagine how it wouldn't work if you didn't have a focus at the very beginning because it wouldn't, you'd never be able to your concentric circles as you increase your fame, if you will, or your repute, as some people say, it wouldn't hold together because you'd have to basically start over every time with the new topic. Before we get too much further down this road, so we've talked about choosing your niche or pigeonholing yourself, and then we've talked about you know the strategies to do the marketing. Um, I'm trying to remember what the third step was. Are we into that yet? It was exactly what Ruben started to talk about, which okay. is creating a product ladder. Oh, uh, Okay. Yeah. So everything I've talked about with, yeah, I mean, a book is a product. If you publish through a third party, you know, like mine was with O'Reilly. If you, if you go through a publisher like that, you're not going to be getting direct access to your customers. They're basically, in my case, they are O'Reilly's customers and I have no idea who they are unless they come up to me and ask for an autograph or something. 
you know, can you send the book? I literally do not know who has my book, which is very frustrating. So for me, a book is more, even though it is technically a product, a book that's published through a real publisher to me is more of a marketing activity and less of a profit center. So when you do get to the point where you've generated enough trust in your audience that you think that you can start converting that into paid engagements of some kind or another, you want to have three or four different levels that they can start paying you. And they would start at a very low price point, say 10 or $20. And they would quickly level up to, you know, as much as, you know, $20,000 a month. So depending on the services. So I, a friend of mine called this exercising their pay me muscles. I want my audience to exercise their pay me <laughs> muscles. I and like you it. do that by giving them a very low risk proposition. Yeah, it's hilarious, huh? I think it was Kurt Elster who said that. But the, so you, you want to give them something that they only have to have a low level of trust. So you want almost an impulse purchase price. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see like the $9 ebooks and that sort of thing. So you have good, other good examples of that other than of a low, books. Yeah. A low price point. Ebooks is definitely great. White papers, you know, it's, it's basically going to be like a PDF, probably maybe a teleconference, like a paid one hour long class, basically. So I could almost take the content that we're talking about here and just record it by myself and say, Hey, for, you know, $19, here's my three steps to never have to do cold calls again. That kind of a thing. Gotcha. But yeah, it's usually an ebook, to be honest. So that's at the low level. So you have, that's a pure product. So you, it's something that is not customized at all for a particular person. They just basically, they look at it, they judge it based on the value they think it, it is, is going to give them, and they make a, they just make that value judgment. They either pay or they don't. It's kind of like self-selecting. So that's at the low end of the spectrum. Then maybe a level up from that could be a productized service, which seems to be coming into vogue a little bit these days where you do things that are kind of like services and do require your direct intervention, but are productized in the sense that you don't have to write a proposal to the client. So it's kind of like a normal consulting engagement, but there's very little customization. So they kind of, you can basically put a description on your site and people can make a judgment right there without talking to you whether or not it will be of value to them. So things like a strategy call or an online training where you're at, it's a like, like a live online training, not a video training, mm-hmm. an on-site strategy session where you come in for half a day and talk to upper management about whatever it is that your, your expertise is. You could do like an on-site workshop. And so these are all, but the, the list of things that I gave you were from the sort of low price point going up to a higher price point. So a strategy call might be two, three, four hundred dollars, something like that. And online training probably be, you know, like Ruben said, it'd probably be a grand if it's a couple days, at, at least a grand if it's a day. Um, but it, maybe it's 500 bucks for a couple hours. An in-person on-site talk, you could easily sell for $1,000. You know, these sorts of things. So they go up. So if there's something about your expertise that you can package up at a pro- as a productized service, then that decreases the labor intensity of having to come up with proposals for every single engagement. And I mean, I, I suppose that you guys have do proposals, right? Like it tends to be a lot of work. Yeah. Yes. Always a lot of work. So yes, definitely. So I mean, it'd easily take me four hours to do a good consulting proposal. And that's the next level up. So the next type of product you can sell, or it's really a service like a high touch consulting service where you essentially agree to 
you know, like a retainer, like a monthly retainer or, you know, some kind of access to your expertise on an ad hoc basis. So my highest end product is like just mobile strategy retainer and it's five figures per month where people essentially the client has 24 seven email access to me. Typically we have one meeting a month in person, depending on where they are. And then, you know, weekly meetings otherwise, but they can get in touch with me at any time to answer anything that's under the mobile strategy umbrella. So that sort of thing, it takes a long time. Uh, that's There's a very long lead cycle on something like that. So, you know, it's extremely lucrative, but it takes a long time to attract and close deals like that, attract clients that are into that kind of thing and then close the actual deal with them. So it's nice to have a range of products that start, you know, down in the one or two digits and work your way up to three and four digits and, and hopefully up to five digits. So you have this product ladder so people can ladder up their services as their trust is increased because you've delivered on all of your promises at the lower levels then they just trust you more and more and more and they've been flexing their pay me muscles and by the time you get to the, the top of the chain you can make some serious cash right I mean, one, of the, one of the things that uh, when i was talking to brennan uh, dunn about this about you know my online courses and so forth his point to me was that he teaches these uh consulting master classes like how how to do what he does and how to do what, what we aim to do in many ways mm-hmm. And he said, none of those people, or I should put it a different way, all of those people bought his lower end products first. They've all worked their way up the ladder, and then they're willing to pay him the, whatever it is, $2,000 or something for the two half days. But it's rare for someone, even for someone as well known as him, for him to get a, you know, someone just saying, oh, let, let, let me go to the master class. And so it sounds like we all have to aim to do that. We have to have this basket of services that are all in the same area so that people can level up little by little. I think so. I mean, I agree with Brennan on all of this stuff 100%. He's great at it. He's also particularly good at the marketing automation that goes behind it to make it easier for himself and decrease his labor intensity. So he, he and I both completely agree about that approach. And it's not like, I mean, I hate the word should. People should do this. I just think it's easier. You're making it easier for people to trust you more and more over time by delivering on first on small promises and then on bigger promises. And Mm -hmm. if at every point you are creating a customer profit, so to speak, then they're just going to keep coming back to you as long as they need that expertise, the particular kind of expertise. Right. So let's say someone, I mean, I I think you've mentioned this already, like, no, let's say someone wants to start off in this direction. First, First of all, how much time do you think they should expect it to take from the beginning of this process until it starts really reaping benefits. I mean, this is not obviously a week or a month long thing. No, no, no. I think six months is a good rule of thumb that you'll start to feel the traction happening. So you're, you're not selling that. You're not going to be selling that twenty thousand dollar engagement after six months. But you're going to. You will start getting contacted by bloggers and podcasters and just people directly via email for assistance about things. You you will feel it start to happen. When you go from that first, that simple stuff level where you, you are in complete control of all of your output and you'll feel it automatically go up to that next level where people are inviting you to speak to their audiences uh, or people are introducing you. So another thing that will happen is if you have, you know, colleagues who are familiar with what you're doing, but maybe they're not the target market, they will know people who are in the target market and they'll say, you know who you should talk to? That's how I met you guys, actually. To mm-hmm. tell you the truth, that's exactly how I met you guys. A, a colleague said, you should really talk to the, the freelancer show guys. And it, it's that you'll start to feel that happening. 
And the, so what, here's the really cool thing about pigeonholing yourself is it greatly increases people's ability to help you because they know exactly what you do and who you do it for. So even if they're not in your market, they probably know someone who is. So they can say, oh, you know, you meet someone at a cocktail party and you say, oh, you know, I'm a, a mobile strategist. So, oh, you know, who do you work for? Well, I work for retail brands. No way. I know the SVP of whatever Costco, you know, so they can they say, oh, I should introduce you. But if I just said, oh, I'm a consultant, you know, oh, well, oh, what, like what? What kind of consultant? Oh, I do mobile I'm like mobile stuff. <laughs> you know, they, they're not going to automatically be like, you know, who I should introduce you to. I know a whole bunch of people who need mobile stuff. You know, it's too blurry to trigger anything in their mind. So once you start to really take a stand, then people will automatically help. It, it helps you all the way around. But I will say that it's very, it's, I've had people get very emotional w- with me trying to push them and, you know, coach them to pick something. It can be brutally painful for someone to pick something because this fear crops up that we talked about already that they're, that they're going to essentially make too small of a pond and there's not going to be enough market to support them, which is virtually always wrong. And they just think they're going to get bored. They just can't believe it. They like, I, that just doesn't fit with my natural curiosity. I love doing, I love learning new things. And, and I'm like, go, you know, learn new things. That's great. Learn new things, but do that on your free time. <laughs> you know, when your business is throwing off enough profit for you to indulge your curiosity in educational pursuits, then go ahead. But that's not a disciplined way to build a business. Being a generalist is not a disciplined way to build a business. It's just indulging your personal curiosity. So I'm going to ask you some questions now about one of my favorite topics, and that is myself. Um, (laughs) I I think that's a common ailment, but uh, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, So I have five podcasts that are, I think they're reasonably niche down, some more than others. So if I were going to pursue this strategy, should I just focus on one of them? Interesting question. So I suppose it depends on what your goal is. So, I mean, the first thing I hear when you say you've got multiple podcasts is that you could niche down to podcasters and offer a product that is directed at podcasters. I can Uh, stop you right there because that's actually what I really want to do. (laughs) But those are those are not the people that I'm reaching right now with my current audience. Understood. But you would know where to find podcasters, right? Oh, yes. And then and the fact that you have built what you've built would be proof, social proof or, yes. or proof proof that you know what you're talking about. So it gives you, I usually refer to it as street cred. You have street cred. Right. With the target audience. So, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't know if, I don't really know. I mean, I have a podcast too, and it's never been my experience that podcasters are good. Podcast producers are great to reach with podcasts. I don't know if that actually maps. Uh, just, it, it depends. Yeah, I, I think it does depend. I don't think it's a safe bet to say that people who do podcasts listen to podcasts about um, podcasting. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that people who do podcasts generally listen to podcasts, but I don't know if they listen to the ones about podcasting. Right. I feel like there could be a lot of ways, but that's fine. Like we, we talked today, we listed, I mean, I must have mm-hmm. listed 10 different ways to reach an audience. Oh, yeah. And well, it's going to be different for everybody in the audience. Some people, maybe podcasters maybe do like listening to podcast podcasts. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Meta. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I am considering putting together, you know, a really short form podcast about podcasting. 
mm-hmm. because I feel like there are people out there that can be reached that way. And mm-hmm. I listen to one or two of the podcasts about podcasting, but to be honest, I disagree with, with uh, most of the bigger names out there. And I, I agree about half the time with Cliff Ravenscraft. And then the other issue is, is that I feel like there are other avenues that can be used to reach podcasters that don't involve having a, an audio podcast. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not going to outline all of the things that I want to do, but uh, suffice it to say that I, I do have strategies for social media, YouTube, and iTunes, basically, that I'd like to implement. And I also feel like, so I get a lot of people asking me about podcasting, but they come from my existing audiences in programming, essentially. And oh, so, interesting. Okay. And so I do, you know, it's funny because I'll talk to a programmer about, you know, oh, I went to a conference on podcasting and they're like, oh, really? Did you speak? Blah, 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 blah. You know, you're an expert. <laughs> and then I talk to other people that are in the podcasting community at large that I know and they just see me as another podcaster mm-hmm. and, you know, not as the content expert. And so I'm wondering if I can build out the, you know, I can start with the people who think I'm an expert and build out into the larger podcasting arena. Right. Well, you know what your target market is. It's podcasters. And I know how to reach them. I know where they are. Okay. And you know what your passion is. So I would say not to oversimplify it, share your passion, like I said, but it doesn't, just because your niche is podcasting, I'd see absolutely no reason to limit yourself at all to that as your medium. You should do right. like a multi-channel strategy. And I actually, have you guys talked to Philip Morgan? He's a good friend who is a content marketer. He's a real genius about this stuff. And he's been experimenting with this thing. I think he calls audio first workflow where you, you do an audio recording. If you're the, you know, cause some people have a hard time sitting down with a blank sheet of paper in front of them, but they can talk all day long. So do, you know, you do the audio recording, you have it transcribed, you have it edited or you edit it yourself. You turn it into a blog post. You turn it into a Facebook post on your Facebook page. Uh, and then over time, you collect these. They're hanging around the same theme. They become uh, sections or chapters in a longer form piece. It's just what we talked about today. I, I see no reason for someone focusing on your audience and having the passion that you have to n- not have a printed format work. You know what I mean? Like, just because it's like, if I'm teaching people Photoshop, I don't only show them PSDs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I don't, I'm not going to limit myself to the thing I'm talking about as it happens to be a medium. So like the thing you're talking about happens to be a medium. So it gets a little, feels confusing, but I don't, I don't think it needs to be. You don't have to use your medium to talk about your medium, which I feel like might be, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I I feel like you're okay. And yeah, it was funny that you went straight for what I ultimately where I want to go. I mean, I love putting stuff out there for programmers, but I record screencasts and I kind of enjoy that. But I I really just love talking about podcasting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's because I don't talk about it all the time like I do on the other shows. But yeah, so yeah, so I could get out there, get those things going. I've made a lot of the contacts to where I could borrow some audiences and speak at the conferences. Mm-hmm. And then from there, yeah, I could put out, you know, a video on what to look for when you design your album art or things like that. And then just start out with a series of videos and then build from there into uh, maybe live events or, you know, just different different things like that. And yeah, build that product ladder. And in fact, that's essentially what uh, my friend Cliff did is he sold the basically webinars for it was 
between thirty and fifty dollars a seat, and then from there um, he kind of compiled all that together and then started selling packages and started selling a course that included all those videos. So, right, it's, it sounds exactly like what I'm talking about. So I, I definitely see that that could work here, and I, I think I could build that level of expertise and then you know move up from there. So yeah, so you know I just start blogging, I start putting videos up on YouTube, I start podcasting about podcasting, I start. Um, interacting with all the folks out there that kind of have uh, audience or ear. Um, I start, you know, I keep participating in the areas where podcasters, you know, get together, build my mailing list. At what point should I start putting out the products, though? When do I know that, that it's time? For me, I'll say for me, and this is pretty true across the board for people I've spoken with as well, is that it becomes obvious when it happens. It's like, how do I know if I'm in love? You'll know. <laughs> you'll know because people will be emailing you asking for this stuff. Right. Like where, how do I give you money? You know, basically. And the one thing that hasn't come up in what you're talking about is that I would urge you to consider as you're thinking about all these things is to be thinking about what the expensive problems are that, that your audience needs solved. And it expensive could be money. Expensive could be emotional. Expensive could be time. But the, what are the painful problems that this audience has? And this is one of the benefits of picking a target market mm-hmm. is you can't just randomly ask people on the street and be like, oh, what, what are your most expensive mobile strategy problems? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make right. sense. But you can ask people who, you know, I you could make a short list of specific names, not categories. I could make a list of a dozen names of people that I would want to get in front of and ask them what their problem is. You know, mm-hmm. so you could do the same thing if you, I almost wonder if podcasters in general is a little, I almost feel like you could go down a level there or at least focus some of the lower tier products on different skill sets. So like I can imagine, I remember when I first started podcasting, I had very different pains than I, than after episode 150. So what are the problems that you're solving? Like, you know, a lot of stuff, but it's the, the goal isn't to tell the world everything you know, like, oh, look at all this stuff. I know so much stuff about this. I'm just going to share it. You want it to be shared in a way or at least presented in a way. It was like, I know a ton of stuff about this and I'm not going to tell you everything, you know, because you don't care about everything. You have a problem right now that you want to solve. Here's the solution. So part of knowing your audience is knowing that, knowing what the really painful problems are and taking the pain away. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm curious because you worked with all these, you know, really big, as you said, Fortune 50 companies. I mean, when you chose a niche, when you chose a direction, when you chose to position yourself, were you looking at working at uh, working with these large companies because you knew that this was painful? You know, they have painful problems and they have the cash to pay large amounts of money. Or were you just, as you say, following your passion and one thing just led to another? Uh, It was a little bit one thing led to another. So I've changed my positioning statement a few times over the years. And a lot of times when I change it, it's because when I look back, well, first of all, a lot of times, a few times when I've changed it is because it was too vague and I made it more focused. And when I look, what, what happens is when I'm like, you know, I'm just feeling like either the leads aren't coming in as quickly as they were or whatever, you know, I'm just like, it just feels like things are feeling stale, that kind of thing. I will sort of look back over the clients that I've had and be like, okay, what's the common theme here? Is there a subset of these clients that I can focus on in the future? And what do they fall under? Which ones did I enjoy working with the most? Which ones had the most expensive problems? Which ones can I help the most? Or which ones need the most help? 
you know, and yes, it's nice if they also have a, a big budget. So you you look at that list and you say, I'm like, oh, well, I love working with retailers. I don't know why. There's just like this certain mindset with retailers. I think it's because they deal directly with actual customers. They tend to be a little bit more pragmatic than uh, people who are like more B2B or like a little bit more, you know, hand wavy, I guess. So I just looked back and I said, hey, I've got to, you know, I've had fun working with these customers. And oh, by the way, I've worked with these customers so I can put a list on my page of like people who are, you know, sort of retail or customer facing guest facing types of enterprises. So it's for me, it's a even I do this, even I'm focusing down more and more trying to always give myself a smaller pond to play in. And like I said, I'm, I'm probably planning to switch it probably in the next month or two. You know, and when I do switch it, I try and make a sort of a small lateral step. So my intention is to, I'm not definitely going to do this, but I'm thinking about going from uh, focusing on retail to focusing on hospitality, which is a little bit more, I think they're a little bit more behind the times. I think they need a little bit more help. And I love the fact that they are guest centric type of industry because those are the ones that are really getting hammered by this kind of consumerization of IT where people, anybody with a smartphone, knows what they want Panera to do, how come Panera's not doing it? (laughs) You know, like all three of us sitting on the, on this call could make a list independently could make a list of like six things that Panera should be doing with mobile. Why aren't they doing it? Right. So, so that's, you know, it's an iterative process, which I think will hopefully take away some of the fear from people who are hearing this, like generalists who do not want to specialize it's not forever. You know, you can you can go deeper and deeper. You can get more specialized. You can change it if you hate it. It's nice to do, like I said, like a lateral move so that you can repurpose a lot of case studies and you can have it like an adjacency to your switch so you're just not starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the fact that you're saying also we can hone the niche over time and hone our uh, either either change it completely or hone it is, of course, very encouraging because it means it's it's an experiment. It's like everything else we do with our businesses. Right. You know, we experiment with it. If it works great, improve it. And if it doesn't work well, try something else. Yeah. It's called taking risks, you know, and you (laughs) want to take calculated risks and that's how you make money. You take risks while we're talking about focusing and iterating. So this, all, all of this like mentoring and coaching stuff that I'm doing, it's really right now it's on my strategy website, which is super awkward. So, you know, I'm offering products to technical firms, basically web geeks to help them with their business with this sort of stuff. And it's, it's super weird and uncomfortable to me, of all people, to have it on my website at all. So I don't even have it in the navigation. Like it's something that people just go to, you know, I tell them to go to jonathanstark.com slash mentoring. It's not advertised anywhere on the site. And what I'm going to do is spin that out into its own domain so that it's its own thing. It's a completely separate entity because I'm, I'm petrified of, you know, the SVP of retail or SVP of user experience at Target coming to my site and being like, what's this mentoring thing? And it's just completely not for that person. You know what I mean? Do, do, you, th- mm-hmm. do you think that would turn them off or confuse them? Absolutely. Think- really? Really? Oh, yes. 100%. I want that person to come to the page and feel like it was written for them personally. I want my target audience to come to my site and be like, I cannot believe this guy exists. This is exactly what we've been looking for. And having mentoring on there is not going to engender that reaction in a, a retail executive's mind. Yep. So. One other question I have then, and that is, let's say that I niche down and I'm just like, you know what? I am going to go out and I am going to totally own the space of, I usually pick plumbers or dentists. So let's just pick plumbers. 
You yeah, know, everyone so. piss. A dentist comes up every time. I don't know why. <laughs> My dad's a dentist, and that's why I use it as an example frequently. But yeah. anyway, uh, let's say plumbers. So, you know, I, I get things together. I put together the website for plumbers. I get things humming along, and I hire a bunch of people to help me get the work done. And then I decide, you know what, I'd like to expand. And so, you know, I, I expand to... I don't know, something related to plumbers, or maybe I do expand at dentists. What do you mean when you say expand? So, so I want to go tackle grow? another market and grow. Why would you grow like that? I don't know. Why wouldn't you just increase your profit margin? Oh, I So see. there's Wait, two that- ways to grow. You can increase your profit by becoming the most famous plumber website builder in the world and demand a really high fee. But like that, I can't, there's no good reason to. Gotcha. To grow horizontally, right? If you, and your example, if you did, it would have to be a complete. I, I, if it would, I would do it if it was a situation like I'm in, where it's a completely different service. It's a totally different thing, right? But I was just, I mean, John, Jonathan, your your example of like weekly strategy sessions with a company, where I mean, there, quite frankly, the amount of time you're putting into it is very small. They are using your expertise and getting a huge amount of value out of it. So it's like mm-hmm. great for everyone, mm-hmm. but I mean. You're only going to get to that point if you become the guy in that field. And that's right. not going to happen if you're the quarter guy in this and quarter guy in that, quarter guy in that, and quarter guy in that. Correct. Yeah. You will be the go-to guy for nothing. Are you asking me a question or were you just agreeing? Yeah, no, I was just <laughs> confirming it. No, just confirming that. And yeah, yeah no, that's very interesting. Because I also, my, my natural inclination is to think in terms of what Chuck's saying also, which is, okay, well, I'll sort of conquer this area of the world. And then... Like I'll move on to this other thing because I'm the kind of person you were describing earlier. I'm, I don't want to get bored and I'm curious about lots of things and I w- want to continue learning lots of different things. And your point seems to be basically that that's great for you personally. That's not good for your business. Don't do that. Yeah. If you will continue to learn, you're going to, but it's going to be a depth type of learning. You're going to be learning more about your audience. And it, it would make me a little bit nervous to do the exact same thing for a new, target market, although people do it, you see it happen sometimes where they say, you know, I'm going to, you know, like, you know, you write a book for, you know, chicken soup for this, chicken soup for that, chicken soup for that, or like the e-myth for dentists and the e-myth for plumbers and the e-myth for, you can see it, but I feel like getting to that point is a long way off for most people and that they can take a business. If someone listening is a generalist, solo developer or freelancer or a boutique firm, if you're a generalist, you can greatly increase your business. You could grow your business like crazy using this approach. And, you know, if you listen to the other episode we did, and I also have a whole bunch of opinions about how, you know, pricing and not to go by the hour, et cetera, all these other things. If you take all of that stuff together, you aren't going to be worried about branching out or entertaining yourself for a long time. At least two years. At least two years. You can be like, I got this dialed. I'm speaking at all the big conferences. I'm talking, I'm getting quoted in the Wall Street Journal. You know, like there's a long way up. Most people don't realize how far up you can go. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. We're kind of at the end of the time. I hate to cut this off, but I'm going to have to. So (laughs) (laughs) I want to just keep talking for another hour, really. (laughs) <laughs> I'm always happy to come back on. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, we're going to go ahead and do the picks. Uh, Reuven, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have uh, two books for picks this week. So the first one I'm sure many listeners have heard of. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the comic strip uh, XKCD. 
So uh, I guess probably about two years ago, the author, uh, Randall Monroe, started this thing called What If? Different, uh, as he puts it, serious scientific answers to absurd hypothetical questions. And he's collected a whole bunch of them in a book. And I I made the mistake of bringing this book with me to a restaurant I went out to when I was done working on a client's project. So I finished working on it, went to the restaurant, opened the book, started reading it. And thankfully, my children were not around because I would have embarrassed them even more than I usually do, laughing hysterically at this book. (laughs) It is so incredibly funny, so clever. I mean, if you think the comic is good, this is just like even 10 times better. Uh, And it's a fantastic, I would say, even learning tool for showing kids, showing people how the scientific method works, that you have this hypothesis and let's see what we do. What if we increase the power? What if we decrease the power? And of course, being a cartoonist, he not only includes these great drawings, but he does things like, okay, well, this is what the world would look like if we drained all the oceans and he draws the map and so (laughs) forth. It's like so clever and so funny. And I was really disappointed when it ended because I just wanted to keep going on and on. So A, that's a great book and a book that I'm in the middle of reading. And it's not as funny, but certainly clever. It's called Dataclism, who we are when we think no one's looking. Uh, And this was written by one of the founders of OkCupid, the dating site. And it's an introduction basically to what you can do with lots of data, or as people like to call it now, data science. And I mean, the the part that uh, the initial part of the, the book, like the first chapter says, well, women claim they're interested in men of this age, and men claim they're interested in women of this age. But we actually have data on who they clicked on. <laughs> and, and we know the truth. And he, he goes through this in all sorts of different fascinating, fascinating aspects of life through the prism of OkCupid and then some other large data sets. And if you've been sort of curious about this whole data science, slicing and dicing, what can you learn about people? Fascinating uh, introduction to it. But it could have used a few more cartoons, I think. <laughs> anyway, those are my two picks for this week. All right. Um, I just have one pick this week. I've been listening to a book on Audible called American Sniper. Um, and it's about a serviceman who, uh, was in the, he was a Navy SEAL. All these terms I'm using probably don't mean a whole lot to people outside of the U.S. But, uh, anyway, it was a really interesting look at the war on terror, the war in Iraq, which is where he was stationed for quite a while. So anyway, if you're interested in kind of having the perspective of somebody who was out there and fought all over Iraq, then, you know, I thought it was a pretty awesome book. So, uh, that's my, isn't that a movie now? Yes. They made a movie out uh, about it and I kind of want to see the movie, but busy person. Anyway, uh, Jonathan, what are your, (laughs) what are your picks? Uh, I have two, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so the first is very practical. It is a new ebook from my friend, Philip Morgan, who I mentioned earlier, it's called the positioning manual and it is so good that I'm actually using it as like a workbook in my mentoring classes. It is amazing. And it's, you know, it's an ebook. It's inexpensive. Um, I presume we can link to it in the show notes, but it's all about, uh, it's, it's about the specific content marketing aspects of positioning that, that, uh, we talked a little bit about today. So I would urge everyone who's interested in any of this at all to go read that because it is hands down. It, it's the best business book I've read in the last couple of years. And it's just amazing. Uh, so that's the positioning manual. And the other one is a little bit more bizarre pick. I somehow came across, I don't even know how I heard about it, but, uh, a website called allegory. I think it's allegory pens and they have a, a fountain pen, a handmade fountain pen 
called The Dignitary, which I got for Christmas. And it's bizarre because I'm absurdly addicted to this pen. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> I just, it makes me want to write like on paper, which is just not my style normally. Normally I'm just on the keyboard all the time. But uh, it has this effect on my thought process where you can't write as fast with it as you can with, say, a ballpoint pen or a, a gel ink pen. So it forces me to think more while I'm writing, and it slows it slows me down a little bit. And it it's something about it makes my thoughts come out in a way that's much more pleasing, feels less crazy and scattered. So uh, it's probably not for everyone. I'm sure it's not for everyone. But if you go to uh, if you Google for dignitary pen allegory, I'm sure it'll come up. It's a, a bizarre little pen. So that's it for me. Cool. Well, thanks for coming back. It was really an interesting conversation, and I'm hoping that some people get some ideas about some of the stuff they can do. I, I definitely got some insight on the, some of the things that I'm thinking about. So Fabulous. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll wrap up the show then. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 